Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. The Lord calls us to give worship to him as the only one worthy of our worship. Let's begin our time together by asking for his blessing upon that worship. Father, hear our prayer, equip us well, and use us to bring glory and honor to you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 312, number 312. confess the truth about the Lord using the words this evening of the Apostles' Creed. Congregation of our Lord, in whom do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Our psalm selection this evening is Psalm 73, which is the first psalm in the third book within the psalms. Fascinating psalm. In a way, it's an expansion upon and a meditation upon the, the same truths that we see at the very beginning of the Psalter. In Psalm 1, contrasting the way of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. But this psalm beautifully fits the text we're going to consider later from Daniel 3. Because it considers how the wicked, as they serve their false gods, as they go about their ways of unbelief, oftentimes to our eyes seem to prosper. Children, young people, you'll see that. How the unbelievers, they seem to do just fine in this world. They've got the big houses, they've got the brand new cars, they've got the, the lauds and the accolades of men. And the psalmist saw that and he wrestled with it. But then, not insignificantly, as he came to the temple, as he came to worship and saw the living images of, in the temple of God's judgment against unbelief, but also of God's salvation in the Messiah who was to come, in Jesus Christ. Suddenly his eyesight cleared. And he recognized that though the unbeliever might seem to prosper for a moment, in the end, because of his rebellion, he will be judged. And it is we who trust in the Lord, it is we who wait on him, who ultimately will know eternal blessing, who ultimately will know joy and happiness. It's a wonderful lesson for us to remember as we live in a world that often seeks to punish those who serve the Lord, who, who follow after Him. In the end, what we receive, in the end, our reward from the Lord will be absolutely beyond compare. Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness 
Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I, pricked, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Let's take up the confession of the psalmist, the start of his confession in Psalter 136. 136. We're going to sing the first four stanzas right now, acknowledging the struggle of the psalmist as he sees the wicked in their prosperity. And then we're going to sing the rest of this psalm in a little bit. We'll sing right now the first four stanzas of 136.
And the knowledge of that should drive us to our knees. We live in a world that is filled with those who hate the Lord. And we should pray both for our preservation in their midst and for their conversion by our example and words. As we do so um, in your announcement bulletin, you'll see a prayer concern from the Missions Committee for Reverend Fritz Harms, who's a church planter in Colorado Springs, also for um, a Reform Mission Services team that is leaving for Haiti this week, as well as planning for a team that is going to uh, be working in the coming weeks in Kentucky and Tennessee um, with restoration after the effect of the tornadoes. Um, and then we have a, a youth group um, or a youth gathering overnight on Friday uh, led by RYS. So with that, let's pray. Father, we have heard the words of the psalmist and they resonate with us. So often, our own eyes have seen the seeming prosperity of the wicked. We see how they live for themselves and for the, the pleasures of the moment. And so often it seems that they have a life of ease and of pleasure. While we so often struggle. And Lord, you know that our hearts are tempted to ask the reason for this. And maybe even to covet the ease and the pleasure of the wicked. But Lord, thank you for the reminder that their ease and their pleasure is but for a moment. Whereas the promises that you have set before us, the glory of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, endure forever. And the trials of this life, while lasting such a brief span, are meant to cast us wholeheartedly upon you, teaching us that no matter what our eyes see and no matter what our world says, you are trustworthy. Your promises are sure and your deliverance is certain. Lord, grant that every heart here might recognize that truth and resist the temptation to covet the ways of the wicked, choosing instead to stand before you, trusting in Christ, believing that your ways are good and your promises are steadfast. Father, we pray that you would make us to delight in your provision and your care. Give us eyes to see the ways in which you provide for us, for our children, for our grandchildren. Help us, Lord, to 
delight to be acknowledged as, to be identified as your children. That we might take no greater pleasure than to be recognized as followers of Jesus Christ, as members of the kingdom of heaven. And if the time should come when we must face persecution for our beliefs, then make our love for you and our confidence in you to be so great that we would not hesitate to choose the scorn of this world, the hatred of men, even the death of the body, rather than to deny you or to back down from our confession. Father, we thank you that you continue to raise up your church in places where previously it was not. We pray for the work in Colorado Springs and the ministry of Brother Harms. We ask that you would strengthen that work, that you would continue to gather to it those whom you've set apart for this congregation, and that you would raise up leaders who would be godly men, able to equip the church for the works of ministry. We pray that you would continue to raise up church plants like that one in Colorado Springs. And that you would lay it on the hearts of our elders and ministers to bring the gospel to fields yet unwon. We pray for our young people and our young adults that as you open to them opportunities for work, opportunities for perhaps moving to new communities, that if it is your will that they go, that they might be part of such works that they might be willing to do the hard work of establishing congregations that love and serve you, that rest wholeheartedly upon your truth. Lord, we ask that you would raise up among us men who are equipped spiritually, academically, emotionally, to serve as elders and deacons and ministers in your church. Raise up women who are able to nurture and disciple the children whom you entrust to them. Lord, cause our young people to delight to serve you, to be identified by you, to show the world that they are members of your kingdom. Father, to that end, we pray your blessing on the, the youth event that is scheduled for Friday. And also, for the, and also we pray that you would bless our catechism. Uh, classes, our Sunday school classes, our youth group and young adults groups, that these all might be used of you to mold and shape and deepen the devotion of the children whom you've set among us. Grant that not one of them might take for granted the promises that have been laid upon them, but that each one might wrestle with how you would have them live out their identity as Christians and confess Christ before a watching world. We pray too for reform mission services and the works that they are facilitating. We pray that you would watch over the group going to Haiti. We know that it's a very dangerous time in Haiti. We pray that you would protect these volunteers and that you would use their labors to Prepare the ground for the sowing of the seed of the gospel. Likewise, Lord, for the teams that are 
being prepared to go to Kentucky and Tennessee. We pray that you would, would raise up volunteers to do that, that you would lay the groundwork for their labors, and that you would use their efforts to encourage those who already believe in you and to bring others to see their need for your providential care and for the saving work of Christ. Father, we thank you for the care that you provided for this congregation. How you have provided for each family among us. The work that sets food on their table. The education that equips them for work. The love and the support and the discipleship that they enjoy. We pray that you would provide for each one of us, Lord. That you would bless our children with a love for you from an early age. That you would watch over our young people and protect them from the snares of the evil one, cause their devotion toward you to deepen day by day. We pray for our young adults, that they would cherish opportunities to grow in Christ, and to live out their faith in the places where you have set them. We pray for our single adults, that you would give them opportunities, abundant opportunities to serve you. And we pray for our married adults, that you would cause their marriages to be living demonstrations of the selfless love of Christ for His church and of the devotion of the church for her husband, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that You would make those who have children to reflect Your love and Your patience and Your devotion in the way that they care for their children. And we pray for the, the elder members among us that they might watch over and encourage and bless their grandchildren, that they might disciple the younger saints in our midst, that the whole of the body, young and old, men and women, might be knit together and build one another up so that each part is used to bless the other parts. Father, we pray that you would watch over those who are dealing with various struggles, whether of the body, or of the mind, or of the soul. Lord, we pray that You would provide for each one. We think of, of those who are preparing for marriage, that You would knit them together well, and equip them for that blessing. For those who are wrestling with uh, temptations, we pray that You would deliver them from those temptations. For those who are pregnant and expecting the birth of children, Lord, we ask that you would bless mother and child alike and equip that family to welcome that child well. We pray for those undergoing the adoption process that you would uh, bless the process and allow your hand to be seen at each stage. We pray, Father, for our loved ones who are going through trials and difficulties. We think of Chris's mom, Jackie. We ask that you would watch over her and Randy and, and provide healing and strength for the body, but also and especially encouragement for the heart in Christ. We pray for Grace's brother on his deployment. We ask that you would protect and preserve him and watch over his family. We pray for those needs that have not been mentioned but that weigh upon our hearts. Lord, grant that we 
might trust you for every need that arises in our lives and confess boldly before the world how perfectly you meet our needs. And now, Lord, as we look to your word, we ask that you would remove from us every distraction that would keep us from wrestling with the the lessons that you would set before us. So that when we go forth from this place, we might be eager to apply what we have heard. And that you might use that word to mold us and shape us into the very image of your Son. Father, we ask this all now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look to God's word in Daniel chapter 3, let's stand and sing together uh, the remaining stanzas of number 136, 5 through 7. invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. Last time we saw how God used Daniel in his youth to reveal to the king the dream that he had dreamed, but more than just the dream, also its significance, which ought to have demonstrated to the king that relying on men and the things of men is foolish. And that only that which God builds is able to last, is able to endure. Nebuchadnezzar outwardly seemed to get that. But clearly it had not sunk into his heart because of what we read in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, 
the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. In this matter, if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O Nebi, O King, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. 
He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like, this, like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Amen. Beloved people of God in Christ, the story of Daniel's three friends and the fiery furnace is the stuff of which Bible storybooks and VBS lessons, and VeggieTales movies are made. It's a story that just captures the imagination, right? All of our children have heard this story. But there's a danger in that. And the danger is that we start to view it the way we view children's stories. Ooh, ah, and then it doesn't change us. We just move on. As though it was just a story. But it's not just a story. It's a historical account of something that really happened to three of God's people who chose to put the worship of God and the worship of God alone before their own well-being. And when they did so, they demonstrated to the whole of the kingdom of Babylon and to all of God's people who came later, an absolutely essential lesson that we need to have as we live in a world that is filled with rage and wrath against the true God. And that lesson is that our God is the only true God. And that He will, in His time, in His way, humble all of the raging rulers of this unbelieving world. And so that's what we're going to see this evening for a few brief moments. How a dazzling deliverance reveals God's sovereignty, God's power, God's authority over this world's raging rulers. We see that message in, in three elements of the story. First of all, in the conviction of the three who refuse to bow to the false god. And then in the coercion of the one who bows the three. But then finally, and especially in the conversion of the one from blasphemy to bowing. So we start by seeing the conviction of the three who refuse to bow. Really, the first part of this chapter sets the scene for us. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, he constructs this awe-inspiring image, perhaps inspired a bit by his dream. 
of the great image with the head of gold that represented his kingdom. Now we're not told much about this image. We're told that it's 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide. That makes it about 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, roughly. But we're not really told, is it in the form of a man? Or is it more like our Washington Monument, just a spire or maybe an obelisk of some sort? What we are told is that it was in the plain of Dura, which was near Babylon, near, actually, the place where the Tower of Babel would have been made. We're told that it was covered with gold, which would have made it dazzling under any circumstances, but especially under the, the blinding Iraqi sun, it must have been visible for miles, glinting on the plain. And Nebuchadnezzar makes a decree that demonstrates that this image really had the same purpose as the Tower of Babel. It was to make a name for Babel or for Babylon and for its king, Nebuchadnezzar. And it was to unite the people, people from all over the world, people from many nations and languages and tongues. It was to unite them in the worship of man. The worship of that which man built, the worship of man that which man created. They are to be united ultimately under a state religion. And understand, there is always a state religion. That's why this is so valuable for us. It's not just a story of how an ancient people in a, a darkened age sought to worship their false gods. This is, this is relevant to us because every state, every government, every nation has its gods. Back then, of course, the state religion was obvious, just as it is in, in nations like Afghanistan and Syria today. In our land, the state religion is far more carefully concealed. Our state leaders pay lip service to keeping the state free from religion. They claim that, that any religion is welcome, but none may be established publicly. None may be enshrined. Even some of our church leaders celebrate the secularism of America's government, but understand that secularism is not an absence of religion. It's a different religion. You remove one religion, inevitably another will arise because men are inherently religious. So in our land, the prominence of Christianity has largely been replaced by secular humanism, which raises man to the throne. And postmodern anarchy, which allows man, each man to determine what is his God, what is his morality, what is his truth. And if you don't think that there's a price to be paid for refusing to bow to that state religion, well, you haven't tried to make a go of it in the public sector. The rulers of Babylon understood well the cost of rejecting the state religion. Verse 7 says that they heard the king's decree that when the, the sound of music was heard, they should bow before his God. And as soon as they heard that music, they bowed. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar was not joking, was not speaking hyperbole when he warned of the consequence of refusal. However, not everyone bowed. Three men at least declined. And those three men held prominent positions of rank. As you might expect, their enemies took note of that 
and they were quick to inform the king. Now, we don't know exactly what is meant by this description of their enemies. They're called Chaldeans. That probably meant that they were part of the caste of uh, the Magi, the astrologers, the counselors of Nebuchadnezzar. It may simply have meant, however, that they were native Babylonians. Whatever their precise position in all of this, it's clear they hated these three. The way verse 8 expresses their malicious accusation is literally they devoured pieces of the Judeans. They hated them. They hated that these foreigners, that these Jews, that they had come and suddenly had been set over native Babylonians, had been set over them and their families and their people. And so they come to the king and they speak to him rather viciously. These, these Jews, they come from a different race of people. They have different gods, different priorities, different loyalties. They're not like you, O king. And they don't obey you. Now, those accusations have the effect that is intended. Nebuchadnezzar is immediately infuriated. Might be because they questioned the allegiance of these three, but it's bigger than that. The fury with which he speaks, the urgency with which he calls the three, it says that he took personal offense. And that's no surprise. For one thing, he had raised these three up in their youth and put them in high positions because of what their friend Daniel had done. But it's bigger than that even. They had rejected his God. They had rejected his religion. They had rejected that to which he had devoted his very heart. And that offended him. Beyond that, in his heart he knew that that wasn't the true God. And in refusing to bow to that God, they had afflicted his conscience. Why is it? Why is it that Worshippers of the true God, Christians today, can cause the adherence of other religions such angst, such anger, in a way that the adherence of false religions don't. It's because in their heart they know that we're worshiping the true God. They know that we're serving the only God that is. And as we do so, we afflict their conscience because they know that they're serving false gods. And they don't want to serve the true God. They don't want to acknowledge His existence because if He exists, then there's real consequence for their sin. And they don't want to believe that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He commands that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought forward. And they are. And he gives them an ultimatum. You will worship. My God, you'll hear the sound of all these musical instruments and you will fall. You will disprove, in other words, this accusation that's been brought against you. And if you do not, there will be no appeal. There will be no judge and jury. There will be no waiting. You will immediately be cast into the fire and burned. 
And notice the taunt that he brings in verse 15. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now he expects them to cower. He expects them with obedience, with meekness, inspired by fear to demonstrate their loyalty and to fall to their faces before his false God. But they don't. The test never happens. The music never plays. Because they immediately respond by saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They don't debate him. They don't try to explain why he's wrong or to defend their actions. They simply say, we don't even answer to you on this. Now that's bold. Especially if you don't expect to see tomorrow's sunrise. But if you are one of those strange people that wants to live to see your children's children, this is not the way to answer the king of Babylon. They have to know that in speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar this way, he has no choice in his pride. He has no choice but to throw them into the fiery furnace. He has no choice but to exercise the full weight of his wrath against them. However, they have good cause for their defiant answer. To bow to that image would be a direct violation of the very first commandment of the ten. It would be an act of worshiping a false god. And to do that would show that they feared Nebuchadnezzar more than they fear the true God. More than they fear the one who gave them life and who has promised them eternity. That was unthinkable. So they refuse. And in refusing, they confess their conviction. Our God is able, in His omnipotent might, is able to deliver us from your hand. And one way or another, He will deliver us. You will have no authority over our souls. But even if not, in other words, even if He chooses not to deliver us physically, know this, O King. We have not bowed and we will not bow to your false God. You won't win. You might take our body, but you will not capture our soul. What a powerful testimony that is. Beloved, consider well that confession that they so boldly make. Even if God lets us die, even if He refuses to deliver us, even then know you did not win, O King. Our knees never bowed to your idol. Our hearts were not sullied by false worship. Our souls remain true to the Lord our God no matter the cost. What a powerful example that is for us who continue to live in Babylon. Because we do. To be sure, the rulers of our world today seldom call us to bow before an image made of gold. But the idols of today are just as real. The idols of today are more intangible. They're things like money or Tolerance or cultural orthodoxy. But they're very real. You want to get elected to public office? Then there's plenty of folks who are going to put you on a platform and make sure you answer the question, are you going to let your religion, your religion, your private beliefs dictate the way that you govern? Are you? Will you dare? You want to be a leader in your community, there's sure to be someone who will put the spotlight on you and say, are you going to be so unloving as to declare that whatever someone feels isn't true? 
You want to go into a career in science, young people? There's going to be someone who asks, will you bow before evolution, or are you one of those backwards fools that believes in some God? You want to teach? They're going to ask you, will you make man the measure of all things or not? Because if not, I don't know that there's a place for you in our classrooms. Those are some of the idols that fill our public lives. And those who won't bow will pay the price. They'll be refused that job, passed over for that promotion, mocked before the world. But folks, compromise with the gods of this world is not an option for us. If you would serve God, then serve God. And if you would bow to the idols of this world, then acknowledge that you aren't serving the true God. There's a clear black and white choice there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow. They willingly paid the price. And at their refusal, the king immediately exercised coercion that would bow them, which is the second thing we see here. What is coercion? Kids, you know that word? When you coerce someone to do something, you force them. You make them do it. Coercion means you use force to ensure obedience. King Nebuchadnezzar in his rage determined to compel the godly three to obey. Now, of course, he can't turn their hearts, right? He can't force them to worship his God, but he can bow them. Verse 19 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar's attitude toward the men changed. His, he was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. You know what that means, right, kids? It's like when you, you say the thing you shouldn't have said and you immediately know it was a mistake because dad's face changes and you know that punishment is coming, right? That's what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He expected them to comply. He expected them to obey. And when they spoke the words that they spoke, suddenly a cloud settled over his features. He was so filled with fury that he ordered... The oven. Now this is a brick kiln. So it's probably dome shaped. It's filled with charcoal. It's used for taking formed lumps of clay and hardening them into bricks that you can make buildings out of. Normally, it's hot enough to melt soft metal. He orders it heated seven times. That means that they would dump all the charcoal they could find in it they would start working the bellows, fill it with air so that it would glow in its heat. So hot was it, in fact, that the soldiers who were made to bring them to the entrance were killed by its heat. But notice what happens. They don't bow as Nebuchadnezzar commands them to bow. They don't bow before the golden idol. But they do bow, they do fall into the oven. It's the same verb. And that shows us something telling. As long as we live in this world, the unbelievers will seek to make us bow. Always. If we won't willingly bow before their false gods, be it man as sovereign or evolution as the explanation of all? If we won't bow before their gods, they're going to seek to make us bow in their punishment. One way or another, they're going to seek to bring us to our knees. The choice lays before us. Will we bow willingly by giving our heart to that which is false? 
Or will we make them force us to our knees in punishment? And God may give them the strength to do that. But if He does give them that strength, we can know for certain they can't take our souls. They can't take that which is most important, most essential. Recognize the lesson in this this brief second point. The lesson is serving God is costly. We need to not sugarcoat that, especially for our young people. Serving God in this world is costly. For many years in our culture, it's not really been the case. But that's changing. For many years, it was okay to go to church and still hold a prominent position in society. It was okay to go to church and still rise up in the company. But that's changing. As our leaders are becoming more and more unabashedly ungodly, as they're taking up the challenge to worship false gods, to worship man, to fear man instead of the true God. It's going to cost you the career you wanted to serve the true God. It's going to cost you your reputation in the sight of your neighbors to serve the true God. You're going to be mocked on the internet. You're going to be mocked by friends and perhaps by family. If you insist on keeping God's law, on worshiping the true God, on holding God's word as the unquestionable truth, you're going to be mocked. You're going to be ridiculed. They're going to force you to bow. But if you accept their coercion, you accept their punishment, that's okay. They can't take what really matters. That's what we see in the last part. You might face coercion from the unbelievers in society, but God will never abandon you. And not only will He not abandon you, but He has the power to take those who seek to coerce you. He has the power to take those who seek to make you bow and to transform them so that those who were God's enemies can even be made to serve Him. It's the last thing we see here. Nebuchadnezzar has the furnace heated to an unimaginable heat. He has them cast into the furnace, bound in their clothing. And suddenly he stands up. Says to his advisors, didn't we send three in there? And weren't they bound? And they say, yes, O king. And he says, but why then do I see four of them unbound, walking around in the furnace. He knows this this can't make sense. His eyes can't be telling him the truth because number one, there were only three, now there are four. Number two, they were bound and now they're free, but especially, they're walking around. We can see the corpses of the soldiers who took them up there and those corpses are on fire. How can they be walking about in the flames? It makes no sense to him, but there it is. And the fourth, The fourth looks like a son of the gods, a bar Elohim in Aramaic. He doesn't know what to make of it, but he's called it right. This is the angel of the Lord. The one whom Abraham encountered as God was on his way to destroy Sodom. The one 
whom Joshua met on the plains of Jericho, who promised victory for God's people, the one who encountered Gideon and assured him that God would use him to deliver God's people. This is none other than the pre-incarnate Christ who as he was on his way to the cross assured his people, I will not leave you or forsake you, but who even many, many years before was with his people when they were in the midst of the trials of the unbeliever. Having seen the three whom he had punished along with the fourth who promised never to leave his people, Nebuchadnezzar approaches as near as he dares and calls out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And they obey. And as soon as they come out to a safe distance, they're surrounded by the king and his advisors. And what they find is stunning. Instead of charred flesh, they see the fine clothing in which they were bound, utterly unscathed by the flames. Their hair is not singed. How many of you men burning a pile of brush have managed to get rid of your eyelashes? And yet they were in the midst of this, this furnace that killed the soldiers who cast them into it and their hair is not singed. And astoundingly, they don't even smell of smoke. That's the part that gets me. You stand around a campfire for a few minutes, you smell of smoke all night walk into a building that's been on fire, and the stench that follows you is unbearable. These men had been in a brick kiln, and they didn't even smell of smoke. Beloved, this is a deliverance that's more complete, more absolute than we can even comprehend. And that shows us how complete is the deliverance of our God. Nebuchadnezzar responds the only way he can. He publicly repents of his blasphemy and bows the knee before the true God. He declares a repentance that is so humble that he even praises the three. This had to blow away their accusers. He praises them for refusing his demand. And he promises to punish anyone who dares to speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then he exalts them to a higher office. No, not, only, not only did their accusers fail to take their positions, but they ended up giving them more power. And so we see how our God is so sovereign that he can reverse the plots of the wicked and cause them to become a rich blessing for his servants. Now when we take all of that together, brothers and sisters, we find a whole host of lessons, but the greatest concerns the sovereignty of God that is so absolute that he can absolutely turn over the decree of the most powerful king in the world at that time. Nebuchadnezzar thought himself, not without justification, to be absolutely sovereign. It was inconceivable to him that anyone would dare to disobey his orders. But these three didn't just disobey they personally defied him. They made it clear that, that nothing he could do would make them bow before his image. Even if they had to die, it was God and God alone before whom they would worship. He couldn't imagine. Couldn't imagine that they would defy him in that way. So fierce was his fury, he wanted them to be vaporized so that nothing would be left. But God showed Nebuchadnezzar the folly of his ways. He showed him that the greatest plans of the king come to nothing when God decrees it. 
And thereby he showed that Nebuchadnezzar was not sovereign, was not ultimate, was not absolute. In the end, Nebuchadnezzar learned. Now, he had more to learn. We'll see that next time. But he learned that our God is true. And our God is greater than Nebuchadnezzar ever could hope to be. What's that mean for us? I'll tell you what it must mean for us. It must mean at least two things. It must mean, number one, that we must not, may not, shall not bow before the false gods of this world. And that's tempting. That's tempting. Because we're so good at lying to ourselves. It won't be a big deal if I skip church to go to this business thing that'll get me ahead because then, you know, I'll have more influence later on in the business and I can promote the ways of God. No, you won't. Because you've denied God in refusing His commands. He's not going to honor your disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could easily have made that argument. Well, you know, we won't really be worshiping because we won't be worshiping in our hearts. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be killed. And then who will stand for the ways of the Lord in the upper reaches of Babylonian government? They could have made that argument. But they wouldn't have been standing for God, would they? They would have been standing for the false god of Nebuchadnezzar. And so will we, if we disobey God in order to get ahead so that somehow we can stand for God later. We won't be standing for God. We'll be standing for the false gods. Or you think, you know, I've just got to affirm these ungodly ways that are ahead of me because if I don't do that, then they'll be so mad at me, these people around me, these people of our society, that they won't be willing to listen to me. But you know what? If you affirm their ungodly ways, if you affirm their immorality, Anything you say about the true God won't have any meaning because you've bowed to the golden image. So the first lesson of this is we can't compromise. Even when it seems like the consequence is unfathomable, even when it seems like the consequence is the end of everything, we can't bow. Because if we do, we've lost the battle. But on the other side, We've got to remember that God is sovereign. Even though it seems there's no way that victory can come forth out of this, we've got to trust that He's greater, that His ways are greater, His power is greater. There is no enemy that He can't transform into His servant. Even Nebuchadnezzar, He caused to bow, to repent publicly. That's unthinkable. And He caused it to happen. Now, He might not. He might let you fall into the fiery furnace and burn up. If so, you get to go to heaven. And I'm not using hyperbole there. There might come a day, young people, children, there might come a day where your refusal to acknowledge, the, to, to celebrate the immorality of our culture, your refusal to bow to their false gods means that you die. It's happening in parts of our world today in places that are overrun by the evil of Islam. There are times when they 
infiltrate a village and they bring people out and they say, if you don't confess that Muhammad is the prophet of God and that Allah is the only God and he's not triune, we're going to take your head off. Or worse, they say, if you don't confess that, we're going to take your child's head off. What are you going to do then? God has the power to stop the sword. And He might. He might not, too. But how much better for your child to be ushered into the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom right now, than to be led into an eternity of suffering by a false confession. We need to trust in the true God and in Him alone. And we need to remember that God promised us in Deuteronomy chapter 30, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of the ground. The Lord will again take delight in prospering you when you obey the voice of the Lord your God. When we show our faith by our obedience, when we show the fruit of our faith in putting Him first, Jesus Himself said, in Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But we must put him first. We must refuse to bow to the false gods of this world, trusting that God will do what is right. As the psalmist declared in Psalm 73, Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. May God make that to be our delight. May He make that to be our confidence. And never will we be ashamed. Amen. Let's pray. Father, give us the courage to stand firm in our confession of You, refusing to bow the knee to the false gods of this world and confessing our confidence that You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the One who alone is worthy of our worship now and unto eternity. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, let us confess together that in God alone is our help and in Him alone we rest as we stand and sing together the end of Psalm 73 from number 138.
Our offering this evening is for benevolence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to give of that which you've given to us to be shared with those who are in need. We pray, Father, that you would grant wisdom to our deacons, that they might provide these funds to those who are in need, along with a reminder that ultimately it is you who provide. May you be glorified through these gifts that are given. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this evening is number 411, How Firm a Foundation.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.